Hello, and welcome to episode 252 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. A warm welcome to Candice D., Maite S., and Andrew C. to The Modern Manager community. As a reminder, I recently celebrated my 250th episode, and in honor of that milestone, I'm offering 25% off the Modern Manager Skills Accelerator. This program helps you develop the skills, mindset, and habits you need to effectively manage yourself and your team members. Plus, it includes a patron-level membership to the Modern Manager community, so you get guest bonuses, extended interviews, and weekly sketch notes with my takeaways. The discounted price is available until midnight, April 30th, so go to themodernmanager.com slash milestone250 to learn more and join. Today's guest is Deb Meshek. Deb is a social psychologist who helps business leaders navigate the relationship headwinds that tank timelines, bottom lines, and well-being. An experienced business advisor, professor, and nonprofit executive, her writing appears in MIT Sloan Management Review, Fortune, Reworked, The Hetchinger Report, and Psychology Today. Deb has been an invited speaker on collaboration and viewpoint diversity at leading organizations, including the United Nations and the American Psychological Association. She is the international best-selling author of the book Collaborate. Deb and I talk about how to foster successful collaborations within your team and organization. What are different ways that we work together that we might call collaboration? And what are the factors that go into collaboration? And how do you improve each of them or deal with it when things aren't going so well? Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Deb. I'm super excited to talk to you. But before we dive into our conversation, I do need to give a shout out to my sister, Marcella, who connected us. I love it when people in my life who know me and know my show randomly meet awesome folks and say, maybe you got to talk to this person. They are like talking about the same stuff and you guys would just still get along. And so I'm really glad that Marcella introduced us and we get to now have this super fun conversation about collaboration. So thank you on my side too. Thank you to Marcella for introducing me to Mimi. And I'm really looking forward to our chat today. All right. So we're talking collaboration. And I love that in your book, the first thing you did was say like, what is collaboration? Because we talk about it all the time. It's clearly an important part of work today and the workplace, but it's also a little bit elusive. And maybe we maybe we could start in that same place and just saying like, what counts as collaboration? I'm laughing because we use this word culturally to mean pretty much anything that involves people working together. And the truth is, is I think this is part of why a collaboration is this very buzzy word, but also why it gets a, a bit of a, a kumbaya bad rap. And there are so many different ways of working together. It can be as basic as you and I exchanging some information and like, was great, all the way to changing how we're doing our work to better meet shared goals, to sharing resources, to actually forbid learning from each other so we both become better at doing our work. And in the book, I offer a definition, which is two or more people working together intentionally to advance the shared goal. And what's, you know, in terms of practical stories and whatnot, I was talking to some some people in an office and they're like saying, yeah, we, we collaborate on our lunch order. And later they were also talking about how they collaborate on bringing incredible deliverables to their client. And 
it's just pretty striking that the exact same word can be used for both of those things. That's that's actually really funny that we collaborate on our lunch order. I mean, yeah, you're all contributing right. to building the lunch order, but it's clearly not the same thing as delivering results to a client. Exactly. So, all right. If collaboration is intentionally working together, two or more people to accomplish a goal, how do we know when our collaboration is successful? Is it really about achieving the goal or are there other factors that we should be thinking about when we're trying to decide or def- or describe a successful collaboration? Yeah. So for me, it, we can break it down into the two broad bins of process and product. So on the outcome side, did we achieve our goal? Great. Did we meet the deadline? Great. Those are the the sorts of things that I think often get tracked in our, when we're doing our business metrics and whatnot. I think more important because it empowers us to be able to, to develop those products is on the side of process. So are we engaging a wide range of people? Are we making space for different voices? Are we able to give feedback in a a timely, constructive manner? And for me, the two dimensions I'm particularly interested in are relationship quality. So how good or bad is our relationship with each other as collaborators, but also the interdependence of our work. So in what ways are we, whether we like it or not, are we... uh, Sinking or swimming as a team. Ooh, I really like those two you just mentioned around the interdependence and the relationship quality. Because I feel like, yeah, we talk about in after action reviews, what are we supposed to do? Did we get it done? And look at our process and how could we be better at it? But I've never been in a any kind of review meeting where we've said, how is the quality of our relationships? And how interdependent are we? And could we do those better? Can you say more about each of those factors? Because I think there's a lot to unpack there that that could be helpful before we move into more about how you improve collaboration. Absolutely. And I'll I'll maybe just preview this by saying this is a very visual model and I'm happy to make it available to your listeners. So this is called the Mashic Matrix. And on one dimension, we have relationship quality. And all relationship quality is, is your subjective sense of how good or bad your relationship is with a particular other collaborator. And what's cool about this is, you know, my background is as a relationships researcher. So I've spent over two decades studying and teaching everything from hooking up, breaking up, everything in between. And so in my consulting, where I'm helping people build better collaborations, that's the lens that I I bring in. And from that close relationships research, what's fascinating is this construct of relationship quality is the most researched thing out there. And it matters in our lives to all sorts of things, including mortality, how quickly our wounds heal, our anxiety, our depression. So this, this construct is super important. And in the workplace, the construct of collaborative relationship quality, also important, and it has to do with things like do I like you? Do I enjoy spending time with you? Am I confident that you're going to be there if if I have a problem? Do I think you're actually good at your job or do I think you're a flaky cake? You know, so there are all these things that figure into our evaluation of our relationship with somebody else. And that can be really, really low and in the gutter, or it can be really high and amazing. So that's one dimension. Then this other dimension is interdependence, which is the extent to which our outcomes are mutually constrained, dependent upon 
the behaviors of another person. So when I do good work, you benefit in some way vice versa. And I, I like to say I'm from Nebraska. So, you know, I like a good farm metaphor. And the analogy here is, is my wagon pitched to your horses? And are your horses well behaved? Or do I think you're going to run me off of the cliff? So the amount of work I can do or my ability to do the next project depends on you actually submitting your thing and you don't do it. And then my boss gets mad at me, you know, so there are all these ways that work can be interdependent. That also ranges from low to high. And so I'll take a breath there just to see if the constructs are clear. Then we can talk about what happens when you have high relationship quality with high interdependence and what happens when you have low relationship quality with high interdependence. Yeah, I think these concepts are clear, but I do have a couple of additional questions on them. So on the relationship side, is this something where like I could think we have high quality relationship, but maybe you feel differently? So are these scores really particular to the person or are they particular to the collective team or both? Yeah, such a great question. So you can measure it at any level. So, you know, in a lot of it's easiest to just say for any one person, how are you feeling about this relationship? It's much more informative if you're a manager to ask everybody on your team, how are they feeling in general? How would you characterize the quality of these relationships? Or if you're, if there's enough psychological safety to do so, asking everybody about how are you feeling about your relationship with each person? And then what's cool is you can actually scale this up all the way to the organizational level where you can say within the context of a, a employee survey, say things like pick your best collaborator. How would you rate your relationship with them? You can also say pick collaborator that you're least happy with and how would you rate your relationship with them? And what it's going to tell you is you know, what your minimums are, your maximums, your average for your like most preferred collaborator, your least preferred collaborator, and so on. So it's a really flexible construct in that regard. Oh, so cool. And what a great way to get a sense of how people emotionally feel connected to people across the company. Super cool. And I just say really quick too, and the data shows that that, that score for individuals correlates with their depression. So higher relationship quality, lower depression, higher relationship quality, lower anxiety. And I love this one, higher relationship quality with your team in the or with the folks in the office, higher job satisfaction. Mm. Super important. So true. Okay. So one more question on for clarity around the interdependence. So it sounds like we're talking about we each do our own thing and then they come together up into like we're really co-creating and kind of really relying on each other's contributions. And it almost sounds like the more integrated we are, the better. Is that true or only in the context of kind of really high performance collaborations does that need to be true? I am smiling ear to ear right now because it's such a good question and it gets to the heart of the model. This high interdependence is brilliant. It's how you, you know, unlock the real potential of collaboration, but that's only true in the context of this high relationship quality. So if, you know, my outcomes, I'm going to sink or swim depending on what you do and and you're amazing and I really like working with you and I trust you and you're competent. That's where like the glitter encrusted unicorns fly through the sky. That's where we really <laughs> unlock the potential of high performing teams. But ding ding to your point, if 
we have this really high interdependence. So, you know, we are yoked together. I think you are not doing your job. I don't think you're capable. I think you're a miserable person to be around. Then guess what? I am in a state of what I call collaborate, where that high interdependence is actually suffocating and creating incredible tension for me as a person, as a contributor. I'm not happy with my job. I want to get the heck out and I'm looking for escape routes. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine what that might feel like. I think luckily I have not yet experienced that kind of collaboration in my life, but I'm imagining that there are definitely folks who are listening who are going like, oh yeah, I've been there. All right. So why don't you describe each of those four quadrants? Because you talked about the sparkly unicorns in that really high performance space and the like drudgery and the I got to get myself out of the situation in that box directly below it. High integration, low quality relationships. What are the other two quadrants in the in the model? Yeah. So in the case of, say, you have low relationship quality and low low interdependence, I just call that emerging. This is where you might, for instance, when you've just onboarded a new team member to your organization, they don't yet know anybody. They're not yet deeply ingrained in any projects. So there's there's real potential there for something amazing to happen. When you're in that quadrant or when you're managing people where this is the space they're likely to be in, the first thing you want to focus on is giving them a chance to drive up that relationship quality with other people before you start inter- or creating all sorts of interdependencies. And this, this can be as simple as onboarding, making sure that you've provided time and coffee money to go out and sit down and have a one-hour chat with each of your t- new team members to get to know them and not just the, what projects are you on? What do I need to know, to know about our clients? But also, what are you interested in? What are your hopes and dreams for this work that you're doing? What do you do outside of work? What are your passions? What are your pursuits? So getting to know them is one of the, the key ways that we can increase relationship quality. So that's the, the bottom left quadrant. Sitting up above that is the high potential quadrant. So this is where you have really high relationship quality, but you don't have the interdependence. This is where it's really fun to hang out with you. I look forward to seeing you at work. I might send you the little messages of high five. That was a fabulous presentation you just gave, but we haven't yet added in that amplifier of creating interdependencies in our work where I love the way you described it. We're like all in on this project where it's like this pooled contributions and pooled responsibility and pooled resources, as opposed to the, um, I spent a lot of years teaching in the college classroom and the, the college students would almost always use the divide and conquer strategy of doing their shared work, which is like the least interdependent way of doing together. So when you're in that, potential space where, again, it's the high relationship quality, low interdependence. It's time to add in the amplifier of creating more more of that um, yokedness. Is that even a word? I don't know. (laughs) More More of the interdependence. All right. So I feel like now we have a good sense of each of these quadrants. I'm wondering if you could walk us through real life examples of and they don't have to be the same team, obviously, but it could be of a team that started in that collaborate quadrant of high interdependence, but low relationship quality and what they did to get from there to whichever quadrant is the right one to go next. Can we just go right up into into that high oh. performance or do we have to go a different route? Oh, man. So here's the thing. So let's I'm going to start with an, an analogy. So let's imagine you're part of a, a married couple 
that's experiencing a lot of discord. And you finally decide you're going to go to the, the relationship therapist to see if you can figure out what to do about this, this relationship. The therapist is unlikely to say, you know what you should do? Go do some trust calls. Like that would totally help. Like you should just go out to dinner together. Fun. Now your, your relationship is all better. The reason they're unlikely to say that is psychologically, it's really difficult when you're in that space of collaborate, of tension to just kind of will away the, the bad stuff because you really feel like this other person's going to take you down. So instead, what the therapist is more likely to say is, you know what, can, is there a way we can give you both a little bit of breathing room? Either one person moves to the basement or if the resources are there, one person moves out to a, a different flat for a while. The idea is to decouple, to decrease the interdependencies a bit, to give you the headspace and heart space to start working on improving that relationship quality. The same thing is true in the office. So when we're in that space of collaborate, and here's your specific example, you got to first decrease the interdependence. And I was talking with a manager at a large manufacturing firm who said, I totally had a team in this space. And I said, well, walk me through. What'd you do? What are your options? And his solution was brilliant and totally coincides with the model. He first said, I I wasn't able, I didn't want to let either of them go. I needed them both. They were both amazing contributors to the work we were doing. And yet it was an oil and water situation that I could not have them in the same space together. I couldn't have them working with the same client because every time I did, it was explosive. Oh gosh, what am I going to do? What he decided was he talked to a manager in another division and said, look, we're just going to call this guy Luke. Look, I need you to take either Luke or Jim for for a while, like let's just give them space to settle in, to reestablish their expertise, their competency without the other person being anywhere near them. And so in this case, Luke moved over to the other division for six months. It wasn't a forever thing. So the company as a whole is still benefiting from both of these brilliant people and their contributions. And then once the two people, Jim and Luke, had a chance to see what each other was truly capable of in these other spaces. So they had now some positive regard for each other. They had had some low stakes informal connections with each other. Then they brought Luke back over to the original team. And now these two are doing brilliant things together. So they they decreased the interdependency, gave space for the relationship to develop, and then brought them back together. So that's an example of how to move from collaborate all the way to collaborate. Oh, I mean, it's such a good story. And when you have that opportunity, if you're in an organization of that size or scale and you can be creative in that way, that sounds amazing. What about if you're in the smaller, like there's only 10 of us on this team or in this department and there really isn't somewhere else I can send someone or our whole company is only 10 or 8 or 15 people. Any tips for how to move from that collaborate and give people space to get them into that emerging zone again? Right, because this was such a, a privileged position, like, hey, there are, you know, tens of thousands of people here. We can just relocate him. So the, the principles are the same. But first you want to decrease the interdependence. And you can do that by I call them three dials. You can change the frequency of interaction with the person. You can change the strength of the influence. And you can change the diversity of the interactions, meaning how many different things are you working on? And so as a manager, if you are in the situation where on your team of five or 10 or whatever, and you're seeing that, wow, I need to, I need to get everybody into their own corners for a little bit to decompress, look for ways of 
you know, do we really have to have all of these meetings or do I really need these two people on all 10 of these projects simultaneously? Are there some smaller things I can do to, to give them both some space? And then on the relationship quality side, like when it comes time to rev that up, all of the tips I have in that space are absolutely available to individuals, to duos, trios, small teams, and so on. So that one's a lot easier, but you're absolutely right. In different organizational context, this idea of how can you change interdependence fluctuates a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go right there with the relationship side. So now you're, you kind of de-escalated the intensity of the collaboration, and now we want to amp up the relationship quality. So what do we do there? So my, so I'll say in the book, this is an entire chapter. So there are nine different strategies in place for how to increase relationship quality. So I'll just talk about, let's do two, or if you have a favorite, feel free to ask about it, but I'll just share. I already mentioned the idea of getting to know the other person. So reciprocal and escalating self-disclosure is one of the things we know from tons of research actually creates that sense of closeness and confidence in another person. So what that means is giving space in meetings, giving space in our workflows for people to interact with the real person they're working with, not just an avatar with that other person. Super important. Another one is, I call it bring the donuts. And I don't literally mean bring the donuts, you can bring whatever you want. But the idea is, what can I do in our workplace that is going to make other people's lives a little bit easier, a little bit more less? And so it could be things like your, I noticed maybe that your chair, that you complain about your chair being squeaky every time you're in the office. You know what? I brought in my WD-40 and I like greased the wheel because you asked me to, not because I had to, not because it was my job to do that, but because it was sitting right there. I can help this. This is a small little thing I can do to make your world a better place. And it has nothing to do necessarily with our work. It can be things like, you know what, maybe I, I saw you pick up the pen and do the start taking the, the group notes last time. Let me do it this time. It's like, how do we share this load? Just all chip in. So that's that's the idea of really activating what are called communal norms in our workplace where we all take care of each other. It's not a tit for tat exchange relationship. And those things are so easy to do and they pay huge dividends in terms of improving our relationship quality. And then there are also things, this sounds so obvious, but have clear expectations. And then once those expectations are in place, actually behave in a way that meets those expectations. So I have a great story here of a friend who joined a new company and she's like super collaborative. This is in her bones, right? This is like who she is. So she shows up, she's in this new workspace. The team has put together a really clear order of operations and workflow and deadlines for this big report deliverable to an external client. So my friend is new. She does everything she can to, to meet all of these expectations for this first report puts it over on her manager's desk, but before the deadline, and then crickets. The manager doesn't get back to her with feedback by the time he was supposed to. It was I don't know, like maybe it was supposed to be in front of her by a Thursday morning. Friday morning rolls around, new thing. Friday afternoon, right before close, the, the manager sends the feedback. And my friend is like, oh, man, well, we're supposed to deliver this on Monday. I guess this means now my weekend is is going to be about re- replying to this feedback in the report. So she gives up her weekend. She's willing to do it because it's like, you know, her first time working with this team and 
I, I want to do my best showing and whatnot. So bust her butt to be able to deliver her iteration by Monday morning, whatever it was. And whew, great. Okay. A few months later, next big deadline comes around. The exact same thing happens. And now she's mad. She's hurt. She's like, who is this manager? Like what a, you know, wow, he's totally not behaving well. This is ridiculous. Big surprise when the third report rolls around, arms are crossed. She's leaning back. She has no interest in actually doing the work that she is supposedly supposed to be part of this team doing. And so what does she do? She corners. She doesn't invest in it much. She doesn't do her best work. So by putting these really collaborative people in spaces where they're not actually supported through her processes or other people waving well, you can knock it right out of them. And so on the relationship quality dimension, one of the best things we can do is honor the expectations that have been put in place. And if you're not sure what those are, you have to have conversations to make expectations explicit because none of us are mind readers. Go figure. Mm, I love that, right? It's it's exactly what you're saying of like, it is not that hard. This is one of the easiest things we can do is to just follow through. And yet it actually feels really, really hard sometimes to uphold those expectations. So yes, 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 yes. I totally agree. Well, yeah. And then I have to wonder, are the expectations well-suited or well-scaled for the situation? Or do we need to have a, a new conversation about those? Or do we need to help people communicate clearly when they're not going to be able to meet expectations? Or what resources can we bring in as managers to support people's work and meeting the expectations? Because just having the expectations, but not being able to to meet them is such a miserable feeling for most of us too. Because we know we're dropping balls and it feels yucky when we have to leave our, our colleagues in a lurch. Completely. And so often I feel like we hide the fact that we're not going to meet it because we're, we, we have either overly optimistic about what we can get done at the end of the week or over the weekend or late at night, or we are embarrassed to let people know. And so we just kind of avoid it and hope that it'll kind of like, I'll deal with it later. It'll go away. Or oh, man. we don't want to ask for help because that makes us look badly to our colleagues or our boss. And then when we finally do have to admit because we didn't get it done. At that point, it feels like the whole world is crashing down. And if we had just spoken uh, up sooner, we could have avoided a lot of mess and a lot of stress and maybe even actually gotten it done by the deadline. Right. Oh my gosh. And my heart is your, like, I feel myself slouching as you're saying that because it is so heavy. And then combined with that is in that space of where, you know, you're not, you haven't done what you said you were going to do. We're all telling stories about each other to bring that about person, uh, they don't actually know what they're doing. And often those stories are not very magnanimous. We often are not paying attention to situational variables. Instead, we start making these internal justifications for other people's behavior of like, they don't know what they're doing or, oh, they're being lazy or, oh, we're not a priority or she doesn't care about this. None of those are probably right. But instead, so what we need to do if we're we're like, oh man, I'm not going to hit the deadline not the conversation. I, I need some help here. Here's what's going on. Here are the other situational drivers. Help, <laughs> please help me unpack this. Oh, so, so, so important. And I hope that everyone will do that, encourage their teams to do that too, is just speak up and ask for help or let people know early. All right. Well, we are sadly out of time. So Deb, can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person such a fantastic boss? 
So even just hearing that question, I bounced back to age 16. So this was over 30 years ago, and it was my very first job. So I, I grew up in a double wide trailer in North Platte, Nebraska. And so there were not a ton of just amazing jobs available, but I got to go work at the McDonald's. And there was a manager, I remember her name, Laura, who was incredible. So she would would do things like, Deb, you're doing, I was Debbie then. I don't go by Debbie anymore, but she'd be like, Debbie, I loved what I saw when you interacted with that customer and she asked for X, Y, and Z and you were able to give that. Or she would say things like, you're doing really great at the counter. Would you have any interest in trying drive-through? And then when I got to drive-through, she would say things like, hey, and I totally remember one particular interaction. You know what? I heard you offer that that customer an apple pie after they had already placed their order. That is so cool because we really appreciate the it's called upselling and what you just did there was was helping the business and trying to meet the need of the customer. So she was doing all of these observing behaviors and giving me credit for what I was doing and when she saw good things offering me what were developmental opportunities at the time to try different positions to move around the restaurant, to increase my understanding, like realizing even things like the idea of upselling. I had no idea. I was 16 what that was. And so just really an incredible manager to have out of the gate and set the bar for me about what I expected from future colleagues and managerial relationships moving forward. Oh, that's so awesome. I love that story. And what a great boss. And where right? can, Yeah. And where can people learn more about you, get a copy of your book and keep up with your work? Yeah, the easiest way is to go to debmashek.com and there you can sign up for my newsletter. So it's a twice monthly newsletter with concrete tips for improving our collaborative relationships at work. And then while you're there, if you want to check out the book or the 90 plus free resources on building better collaborations, feel free to, to wander around the site. And I love being in conversation with people. So let's connect on social media and start a conversation. Well, thank you again so much. It's such a pleasure and a joy to talk with you about collaboration and how we can make workplace collaborations more effective and more enjoyable. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Deb is providing access to a one-hour micro-workshop recording where she will equip you to identify and overcome the collaboration headwinds that are holding back your organization. You'll discover the four keys that will unlock deep collaboration in any organization, identify your organization's most pressing needs using a simple diagnostic tool, and receive research-backed strategies that you can use right away within your organization to improve collaboration. This offer is available to patron members of the Modern Manager community. And remember, if you join the Skills Accelerator now at 25% off, it includes a patron-level membership. To join, go to themodernmanager.com join or check out the discount at themodernmanager.com milestone250. All the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox along with a mini sketch note that has one of my key takeaways from this interview. Just subscribe to my newsletter at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit Meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player 
and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.